Hey, Ann Arbor in the world. This is It's Hot in Here. And this might blow your mind because this is Friday. It's not Monday. Um, and this is our new time, 12 to 1, Fridays, <laughs> not to be confused with Mondays. Um, I'm your host, Jennifer Johnson. I'm here with the fantastic Kevin Merrill. Yes, you are. What a day. Every time we do the show, we get fantastic weather. Well, we should do the show every day, every and then day. <laughs> we would ensure, because that must be why it's so nice. It's because we're cool people and... We bring good things to life. <laughs> we bring hot sunshine for everyone to enjoy. Well, we have an exciting show for you today. Yes, we do. Um, soon after this, we'll be checking in with Rachel Chatterton of the Fair Food Network, who gives us a little lesson on preserving the bounty of the fall. Um, some easy techniques for preserving food through the winter so you can enjoy it all winter long. Then we'll be talking with Andy Haugen, who is a student of the program in the environment, and she has set up her own major in human and animal studies. So I'm very excited uh, mm. to talk with her very soon about some work she's done in South Africa over the summer. Then John Harnoy, um, who hand raises chickens, turkeys, and by default their eggs, uh, will be dropping in between stops to drop off eggs at the Ann Arbor Food Co-op and chickens elsewhere. Uh, we'll be stopping in to talk to us about uh, chickens and turkeys for the upcoming fowl season. Gobble, gobble. And then we'll be checking in with the conservatory director at the Methai Botanical Gardens. We're going to do all that in one hour? Michael Palmer will be talking with us. Yes, it's going to be a whirlwind, so we should get ready. I want to talk about uh, eco-friendly Halloween, too, in there someplace. Oh, well, we'll do our best. Okay, all right. Yeah, cool. Um, all right, well, we should get us in the mood for Halloween. First, let's uh, listen to our first tune, which is Bobby Pickett with the Monster Mash. Oh, we don't have to fit it in. I was working in the lab late one night when my eyes beheld an eerie sight. For my monster from his slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the mash. He did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. He did the mash. It caught on in a flash. He did the mash. He did the monster mash. From my laboratory in the castle east to the master bedroom at the vampire's feast, the ghouls all came from their humble abode to get a jolt from my electrode. They did the mash. They did the monster mash. The monster mash. It was a graveyard smash. They did the mash. It caught on in a flash. They did the mash. Monster Mash Out from his coffin rack's voice did ring 
seemed he was troubled by just one thing. Opened the lid and shook his fist and said, Whatever happened to my Transylvania twist? It's now the mash. It's now the monster mash. The monster mash. And it's a graveyard smash. It's now the mash. It's caught on in the flash. It's now the mash. It's now the Monster Mash. Now everything's cool, Jack's a part of the band. And my Monster Mash is the hit of the land. For you, the living, this mash was meant to. When you get to my door, tell them God is sent. Then you can mash. Then you can Monster Mash. The Monster Mash. And you might... Monster Mash. Dancing with Monsters. That's really fun. I used to have that on a 45. Heck yeah. I bet you just wore it to the ground. <laughs> and I would wind up the the music player, the the VO, the Vitroller or whatever we called it back then. Yes. Oh, 45s. Man, my first was Walk Like an Egyptian. Your first 45? Yeah. Perhaps my first and only. But that's well, that that's certainly like the, the 80s. They were still selling 45s in the 80s? They sure were. To to tiny girls. Maybe your small little <laughs> Ohio town. It was it was a yeah, it was like a toy robot. Uh, record player. It was really cool. Was it also a like a, a little bake oven too combo? Yeah, I would bake. I would bake delicious <laughs> treats and listen to walk to the bangles on repeat. Oh Thanks, mom and dad. I love you. Um, so speaking of love, oh yeah, there's going to be a lot of it Saturday at the football game. Uh, SNRE is all over these football games. We uh, last week we talked about the uh, the. Um, what was the word we used? Composting, the repurposing, the harvesting of the yeah. uh, of the material at the uh, Regent's tent. Yeah. And so uh, this weekend, the um, SNRE specific event um, is a um, activities around honoring Courtney Wilson, who was a uh, doctoral student uh, and an MS grad of the school, and she died uh, very suddenly, uh, and, and uh, for the whole school, very sadly. Uh, um, five, six weeks ago. And so at this home football game, um, the students are getting together and it's, it's open to anyone, but it's really being organized by current nerds mm-hmm. to uh, celebrate her life and to show the world since they're planning to bring a banner into the big house and hopefully get on TV. Beautiful. Um, what uh, Courtney meant and also to talk about what, what the, the tribe is all about at SNRE and how students work together and, and support each other and uh, Courtney's death... Um, brought home that point in, in a big, vivid way. So so I, there are still, I believe, as of uh, two days ago, some free passes to the football game for students. Um, mm-hmm. And they're going to have food. But the point of telling you this is that um, there's going to be this celebration of her life, and it's going to be hopefully on TV, and they're going to have T-shirts and the banner. And, uh, and it's, it's about our school community being a community. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, there are certain events that that mobilize uh, people to come together, and and you can see the strength of a community that way. It's it's unfortunate that those things have to happen, um, but that's that's great. So everybody, look out for that. Look for the banner. Look for the banner. There's all, they also have a, a hashtag, a Twitter hashtag, uh, Snurd Nation S N R E D Nation. Hmm. In case you just cannot get enough of your. Of your snurd love, you can follow these guys. On Hashtag Twitter. snurd nation. Snurd nation. Uh, 
Jim Campbell, engineer to the engineering booth, please. <laughs> Jim Campbell, engineer to the engineering booth. Did he just order a pizza? Uh, he did just order a pizza. Uh, so we'll be enjoying lunch soon. Speaking of food, mm. Rachel Chatterton of the of, I spoke SNRE with her, a SNRE grad and also School of Public Health, uh, telling us about food preservation. Let's take a listen. Okay, I'm here with Rachel Chatterton, and lately I've been going to the farmer's market thinking, what am I going to do without this abundance of delicious fruits and vegetables throughout the rest of the year? And I thought, there's one gal I know to ask such a question. (laughs) And that's you, Rachel. That's me. (laughs) Hi, Dina. (laughs) Hi, Rachel. Uh, And this is Rachel's first time being back on the newest iteration of It's Hot in Here. We're happy to have you. Yeah, I'm so glad to be back. Cool. A little bit of what's in season. Heck yeah. Rachel used to co-host the show with me long ago. Mm-hmm. Not that long That's ago. That's so long ago, especially yeah. not in the grand history of the universe. But really good, you know. <laughs> it's, it's a flash in our lifetime, I guess it was a while ago. Perhaps, yeah, yeah, in a in a life scale schedule. Uh, and now you are working for the Fair Food Network, correct? Of Michigan, located yeah. in Ann Arbor. That's right so great, in Ann Arbor. But yeah. let's talk about preserving food. Let's eh? talk about preserving food. Yes. <laughs> what can we do? Well, uh, fortunately, we are in a time of great bounty right now in the end of October, and there are lots of ways to preserve everything so that you have local food to eat all year round. And your food preservation falls into a few basic categories. Mm -hmm. There's, um, and I'm going to list them in order of most basic to most advanced. Okay. So I would say first is just cold storage. And that's, you know, making room in your fridge Uh uh, to fit stuff and things like squash, um, some root crops, like turnips and rutabagas and potatoes. Those will keep just fine for weeks or months even. Do you even need to put those in the fridge or can you put them in a cold place somewhere? Ideally, they'd they'd like to be around 45 to 55 degrees. Okay. Okay. Um, which is warmer than a typical fridge, but cooler than a typical house. But yes. if you have, say, an enclosed back porch uh-huh. or a root cellar, if you're super cool like that, um, that's actually <laughs> the perfect place to put your roots, obviously. Um, but if not, the refrigerator is better than just leaving them on the counter. It lasts a little bit longer. Excellent. Um, the next more advanced option is drying things. Uh-huh. And this is really easy to do with things like peppers and herbs. You can, if your house is dry enough, you can pretty much just hang them up to dry. With peppers, you want to put them on a string. So lace them like they're beet, put a needle on a thread and lace, lace it through the peppers and just hang them up. And with herbs, just tie them in bundles and hang them. And if you can hang them somewhere where there's a a breeze or a draft, that'll help them dry even faster. Wonderful. And if you have a dehydrator, if you can get your hands on one of those, you can dry pretty much anything else. Uh, Fruits dry really well. Apples, tomatoes dry great. Mm. Um, And you can even dry things in the oven on a really low temperature, like 150, 200 degrees if your oven will go that low. Wow. So would you recommend only doing this for like the smaller hot peppers or could you also do a really big one? For the hot pepper or for peppers... In general, I would say the best way to do small ones is by drying. If you want to preserve larger ones, roast them and then freeze them. Sounds delicious. And freezing is the next most advanced option for preserving your fruits and vegetables. And the reason it's more advanced is because vegetables, if you freeze them raw, 
Mm. when they thaw, a lot of them will have kind of an off taste. Mm -hmm. And that's because vegetables are made of cells, of course, and within the cells there are little packets of enzymes and sugars and proteins and whatever. And when they freeze... Um, Mm -hmm. the water in those cells causes the cell walls to burst and all of those things start mixing with each other, creating funny flavors that wouldn't be there if you were just cooking it from raw and eating it right then. Right. So with most vegetables, what you need to do is blanch them for anywhere from two to six minutes, depending on the vegetable. So do you like make them watch the Golden Girls for five minutes or how do you blanch something? You, you uh, make it participate in a staging of a streetcar named Desire. (laughs) (laughs) And then drop it in boiling water, and then immediately into cold water, and then dry it and freeze it in airtight plastic bags. So you're saying about five to six minutes? It depends on the vegetable. Okay. Um, but a typical is like three to five okay. minutes. Okay. Um, if the general rule of thumb for something green is you want it to turn bright green and not start to turn that kind of overcooked darker green that things can get if you leave them in the water for too long. After that, do you wait till they're dry before you put them in the freezer? You put them immediately into cold water after okay. you take them out of the boiling water and uh-huh. then dry them. Uh-huh. Um, so you can either just leave them out on the counter or I like to lay them out on clean towels and kind of block them dry. Yes. yes. And you want, to, yeah, you want them to be dry when they go in the freezer. Okay. Do you think we could do something like that with the grape? Like a delicious Concord grape? I really bet you could. Blueberries yeah. are awesome. Um, and that's the other thing about freezing is fruit. You don't have to blanch because it has such a high sugar content. The sugar actually acts as a preservative. Awesome. Um, so with grapes, yeah, just wash them and dry them and put them right in the freezer. And I bet those would be delicious. Yeah. Um, apples freeze really well. Um, really? Raspberries freeze really well. Those so you could just put fruits. a whole, whole apple into your refrigerator? Or no, your with apples, I would chop okay. them up and put a little sugar on them. Okay. And then put them in. I like to make um, bags of apple pie fillings. So I do, my apple pie usually has uh, five apples sliced, mm-hmm. about three-quarter cup of sugar, a teaspoon or so of cinnamon, maybe a little nutmeg and a little bit of salt. Uh-huh. And I'll mix that up and put that in a bag and put it right in the freezer. And then when I want to make an apple pie, all I have to do is make a crust. And then I just pop that right in there. That is such a great idea. Time-saving. Yeah, majorly. The next most advanced option would be canning Canning. with a water bath. Okay. Um, And that's a little tricky. I recommend people just look that up on the internet or get the ball book of canning Mm -hmm. for the basics. Um, Every university extension service has resources on canning. Mm -hmm. Um, Next advanced after that would be pressure canning, which requires a special piece of equipment and lets you can uh, lower acid things like straight vegetables without pickling them. Uh Uh-huh. And it... It heats the contents of the can up past the boiling point, so it really kills everything that could possibly be in wow. that can. Botulism is not your friend. Not your friend at all. No, unless you're having it done in a controlled environment by a plastic surgeon, in which case it is a friend. <laughs> but that's what I hear. Of some women and men, I suppose. Yeah. Right here. Yeah. Um, and then the glorious triumph. We don't need Botox on the radio. No, not on the radio. <laughs> The glorious triumph of food preservation, the most advanced option, I think, is um, fermentation. Tell me more. Why do you think that's the most advanced? Not like some kind of crazy technological good? In terms of the technology, it's like way back on the simple end of things. You don't need a refrigerator. You don't need a pot that boils water. All you really need is vegetables, salt, and a container to put them in and Uh clean hands. Uh So 
that that way of thinking it's actually one of the most basic forms of food preservation but in terms of like the mental process you have to go through to prepare yourself to ferment something <laughs> and then eat it is yes. is it's kind of a hump to get over because you're basically purposely rotting vegetables into uh-huh. a state that they're only digestible to humans after that you know it's phenomenal. It's so cool to do. And it seems it's also like you are making the thing which is then, it's not just water, it's mm-hmm. not, yeah, um, whatever. You're making the substance in which it's being preserved. Mm-hmm. So can you give us uh, one or two basic sort of pickling recipes that we can like do? Fermented? Yes. So the basic, I'll just give you the very basic, and everything from here on out is, uh, is just you know, embellishment upon this basic recipe. Okay. So sauerkraut. Yes. Clean jar. Uh-huh. Sterilize it, pour boiling water in it, whatever you have to do to make sure it's perfectly clean. Is that how you clean. sterilize it? Yeah, you can run it through the dishwasher. You can put it oh. in a pot of boiling water. Okay. You can just pour some boiling water into it and let it sit for a few minutes. Uh-huh. After you've scrubbed it out, of course. Uh-huh. With soap and water. Um, <clears throat> head of cabbage. Uh-huh. Um, peel the outside leaves off the cabbage. Yes. And slice it as thick or as thin as you like. I like mine pretty well shredded. So uh-huh. like, you know, a couple millimeters thick slices. Yes. And um, just put those, chop, put that chopped up cabbage in a bowl. Uh-huh. And then pour yourself about two tablespoons of salt in a little finger bowl. Uh-huh. Okay. You ready? Yes. Okay. We're yes. going to make sauerkraut. Okay. Take a handful of the cabbage. Uh-huh. Put it in the bottom of the jar. Yes. And using either your fist or a wooden spoon, I would recommend always a wooden utensil, jam that cabbage into the bottom of the jar uh-huh. as tightly as you can uh-huh. and then sprinkle a little bit of salt on it. Mash it up a little bit more. Another handful of cabbage, another little sprinkle of salt, jam, jam. it in the jar. Cabbage, salt, jam it in the jar. As you jam, the cabbage is going to start to break down, and the salt's going to help that, and the water will come out of the cabbage leaves and form a brine. Uh And as you fill the jar all the way to the top, you should end up with a couple millimeters of brine worth to Uh cover the top of the cabbage. Um, And then then, um, you take one whole leaf of cabbage and use that as like a lid on Uh all of it. Tuck it in around the edges so Uh you've got this jar of shredded cabbage jammed in with jammed in there uh-huh. with brine covering it and then like a lid made uh-huh. of a cabbage leaf on top. Put uh, the cap on the jar, not too tight. Let mm-hmm. it sit on the counter for about two days and then put it in your refrigerator and wait about five weeks. I'm going to do that tonight. That's sauerkraut. That's it. That's all it is. <laughs> oh my goodness. So like I was saying. You don't saying, add any water. Nothing. No water. Just salt and cabbage. That's it. You want to get fancy, you can add some uh, seasonings. I like it with caraway seeds or uh-huh. with black peppercorns or with uh, hot pepper. Yum. And if you want to make kimchi, uh-huh. do that, but add kale, um, shredded carrot, and shredded turnip. And then when you're putting the salt in, also put in some minced garlic and ginger and chili pepper. And that's kimchi. That's it. I can do that. It's so easy. I have some in my refrigerator right now. So yeah. so layering the cabbage and other materials with salt, mm-hmm. jamming it in. Yeah. Cabbage, jam, salt. Yeah. Counter for two days. Yeah. And then put it in your fridge for five weeks. Mm-hmm. And or then, so. Yeah. Until, or when you can't wait anymore. Yeah. And just and taste it. Kind mm-hmm. of taste it as it's going because it's going to change in flavor and mature. Mm-hmm. And that'll keep in there 
you can start eating it in four or five weeks, but it'll keep in there for like two years. We just finished. <laughs> two years! Seriously, my husband and I just finished a jar of kimchi that I made in September of 2011. We just finished it like two months ago. Wow. It keeps so long. And and you're looking great, so it must be contributing yes. to the happiness <laughs> and health of you. That's fantastic. Can yeah. you give our listeners any other suggestions for places to go, perhaps on the internet, besides the university extensions? Maybe just go to them. Yeah, the basic stuff is there. And USDA has some guidelines uh-huh. for canning, just uh-huh. the basic food safety guidelines. And I would start with those. And I think they go probably a little past what's absolutely necessary in right. terms of sterilization and acid levels and stuff. But that's just for safety's sake. Yeah. Um, and they always recommend you use a recipe that's been tested for shelf stability if you're canning things. Uh-huh. But um, I love this this blanch and freeze thing. That's yeah. so easy. Blanch and freeze. Um, Cooks Illustrated has an excellent guide to how long each particular variety of vegetable uh-huh. wants to be blanched before uh-huh. it's frozen. Uh-huh. Um, that's what I use as my reference. And um, for fermentation, um, there is – the classic is Sandra Ellick's Katz's – uh, wild fermentation, which mm-hmm. has like recipe for anything you could possibly make using wild yeast and bacteria. Um, and then there's also a really neat book called Preserving Food Without Canning or Freezing. And I don't recall the name of the author, but it, it goes through how oh. to dry, how to ferment, how to preserve in alcohol and vinegar, uh-huh. um, and, and root celery. Those are all covered in that book. I love it. I mean, the most of these are very sort of ancient technologies that have yeah. been developed to make sure that there's food. Yeah. And developed by ladies. Let's be serious. Let's be serious. For sure. <laughs> well, excellent. One of my favorite ladies, Rachel Chatterton. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so Thank much, you Gina. so, so much. And we look forward to your upcoming What's in Season Yay. segments in the future. Me too. All right. We are back. Thank you, Rachel Chatterton of the Fair Food Network for taking the time to speak with me. And we'll hear more with her soon. Uh, During all that break, uh, we have had two exciting guests join us in the studio here with Andy Haugen, who is a student at the Program in the Environment at the University of Michigan and has also created her own major in human and animal studies. Hello, Andy. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for having me. We are very excited to welcome you to the It's Hot in Here studios at WCBN FM Ann Arbor and also an old favorite, not in age, only in friendship, John Harnoy. Hey, how are you? Of Harnoy's Happy Hens. Is that how we're, we'll call it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, your hens are so happy. Oh, yeah, right until they go for ice cream. Yeah, and so delicious uh, also, which is nice. Actually, this is a wonderful juxtaposition um, in terms of talking about kind of the care and, and, and purposing of, of animals. Or com- not juxtaposition, but complementary. <laughs> So Andy has been uh, has spent a significant portion of her summer in South Africa working on various uh, wildlife conservation product projects. 
Can you give us a little summary? Yeah. That? So um, I actually heard about this through, I'm in the pre-vet program here at Michigan, and um, the president of the club, she had some pictures of herself with cheetah cubs. And I was, saw that and was like, all right, how can I figure out how to do this? How do I get a selfie with a cheetah? <laughs> exactly. You should see my profile picture on Facebook. <laughs> it's with a cheetah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, she told me all about this program in South Africa that she did, and um, it was volunteering for this um, organization a nonprofit called Cheetah Experience in um, Bloemfontein. And um, so I also wanted to kind of make use of my time down there and see if I could find a study abroad as well. So um, I actually heard about this through an email by Pite, which was cool. Um, and it was a study abroad program through the University of Pretoria. Mm-hmm. Um, it was called Vets in the Wilds. Um, and we learned a lot about uh, wildlife management and African mammals. And um, so we spent a lot of our time focusing on, you know, what it would be like to be a veterinarian for African wildlife specifically. So um, that was really cool because it was a very hands-on learning experience, something I've never really done before, you know, Uh getting really hands-on work with, you know, the communities, the local communities, and also, you know, what it means to deal with wildlife in South Africa because what, you know, we have perceived it to be and what it actually is was a lot different than what I had thought, you know, and a lot of the wildlife... um, veterinarians down there are mostly working on private game reserves owned by South Africans, you know, for tourist purposes. So that's the majority of where we spent our time working with the actual wildlife there and mm-hmm. darting them and, you know, giving them vaccinations and the such. It was very exciting, but also very, <laughs> very interesting. And then uh, my second month, I volunteered at that Cheetah Experience Place, which is a, a nonprofit um, cheetah breeding project. They also focus on conservation of leopards and and servals. And what they is have, a serval? A serval, it kind of looks like, yeah, it's a cat, oh. and uh, it looks like a very large house cat. A lot of servals are actually bred with cats, domesticated cats as pets, um, huh. and they are the only cats with both stripes and spots on their <gasps> fur. Well, hey, yeah. they're yeah. probably very dangerous for chickens. <laughs> yes, <laughs> probably. <laughs> Eat the heck out of chickens. <laughs> but great to have around uh, if you don't want a lot of rats around, for example, or mice. Yeah, yeah, they're... Um, very, very endangered, though, um, especially in South Africa. They're, since they have only stripes and spots, they are seen as very, very um, fashionable in the fashion industry. And huh. How so big are they? They're, I mean, they're the size of probably a large house cat, so they're pretty small for a wild cat. And, uh, hmm. you know, it takes up to 15 servals to make one fur coat. So you can imagine um, the amount of hunting it takes of these guys to put them into the fashion industry. So, uh, Are they protected? Um, I'm sure they are. It's, uh, most, most endangered species in South Africa are protected and most of the hunting is illegal poaching. So, but still it's, you know, a lot of it's As opposed to legal poaching. Legal (laughs) poaching is uh, not a thing either. (laughs) I like it. What were some of the, what's some kind of, um, received wisdom or assumption that you came to your experience in South Africa with that then... You realize, whoa, it's not it's not what I think. Or, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, specifically, I think with um, 
kind of talking about illegal versus legal hunting of these animals, um, there are four, five lions at Cheetah Experience, and um, the owner, uh, Rihanna, she's one of the most kind-hearted person I've ever met, um, and she does this a lot out of just the kindness of her heart, and uh, so she's been raising lions and helping them to, you know, breed with other different facilities down there, but um, she uh, found out about this industry in South Africa that's um, actually very, very prevalent now, um, and it's called canned hunting. And what it is essentially is um, these lions, it's completely legal by the South African government as well. And what happens is these lions um, are bred in captivity and they are hand raised. So they're essentially not afraid of humans. And there's a bunch of these like lion parks in South Africa that tourists can go to and pay a bunch of money to, you know, go pet the lions, go um, walk with the lions. And what happens is these lions, once they're too dangerous to, you know, pet anymore, they then get sold, usually like, um, you know, silently into these uh, canned hunting farms. And what they do is they... uh, put them these animals in very small enclosures they usually drug them up and they have um people come and pay thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to hunt these animals and take the trophies back home how and old it, would they be you know once when they're, they're no longer pettable and yeah they're shootable. yeah i mean they can usually within like six months you can walk with them and stuff but uh once they are uh you know with their big manes and stuff probably about a year or two that's when wow. they usually are into sold into the industry yeah so that was, you know, this crazy thing that I had no idea about, but it's, you know, a huge business down there. Well, it sounds like a perfect, uh, perfect bad example of the confluence of human and animal studies that yeah. they're being bred solely for entertainment on the front end and then harvesting and uh, poaching on the back end. I can't imagine there's anything good in it for the lion. No, not for the lion, for, you know, these international tourists who like to hunt, you know, it's a great opportunity for them, I guess. I don't know. I don't really understand the uh, thrill. There's not really much of a hunt going on there when they're in these small enclosures and drugged up and... The thrill of displaying it at home. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) Kind of turns the stomach, so we should go to a tune. Uh, This is the Talking Heads (laughs) with Psycho Killer. This is going out to the canned hunters out there. All of them.
This is It's Hot in Here, and this is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, and live in the studio, we have Andy Haugen and the fantastic John Harnoy. Woohoo! Yeah! So we're talking about animals. Yeah. Raising them, hunting them, eating them, saving them. So when you went to your advisor and said, I have this idea, (laughs) put together a little anthropology, sociology, ecology, wildlife management, um... This is the first time it's ever been combined in this yeah, sort of way? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they don't really, you know, advertise the whole individual major program because they want students to find something that's already here, you know. But once I kept coming back to my advisor and being like, I can't find something that works. I can't find something that works. He finally was like, you should check this program out. And, um, you know, you have to go through a whole process of getting, you know, faculty um, recommendations. And I had to come up with my own curriculum and write like a five page paper about why I cannot take this with the current uh, courses that are allowed and the current majors that are allowed and how I had to create it myself and how it's beneficial for the university to have this as, you know, one of their majors. And so they actually were thrilled about it. They uh, The feedback I got was very positive, and um, I was really ecstatic once I finally was able to, you know, pursue it and do the classes that I wanted to. So you pick classes from other LSA or other? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of the sciences, you know, because most of the animal-related classes here are in the sciences and, um, you know, a lot of anthropology classes as well. Uh, Michigan actually has a great animal behavior department, and I'm in contact with a lot of the professors there. And I I actually do research with this professor um, named Barbara Smuts, who um, has worked with Jane Goodall and does a bunch of stuff. I actually saw her on National Geographic the other day and I was watching it and I was like, okay, there's there's my professor that I do research with. Um, We're currently doing a study on howling in dogs. So that's quite interesting. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I asked you during the break that human animal, you know, we talked a lot at the start of the segment about uh, lions and leopards and other felines in Africa, mm-hmm. but human animals doesn't imply domestic. It's both domestic 
in human as well as wild and human animal studies. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, especially when you look back in the history of our interactions with animals, you know, the first interactions with humans and animals were all wildlife. You know, humans were the ones that started domestication, which is also a very interesting process in itself to, you know, look at. And just take the dog, for example, you know, they're domesticated within like only 300 years. And, you know, the variety you have from a Chihuahua to a Great Dane. And -hmm. it's all based on what humans have selected for and they've all gotten that just from the wolf you know and so i think that even the domestication of dogs is a whole you know it could be a whole class in human animal studies hopefully in the future but it's or chickens (laughs) chickens (laughs) yeah so domestication is a very interesting subject and how you know we have mostly selected especially with dogs it's been more aesthetic purposes especially in the um you know to having more fluffy faces squished in faces you know these things that are appealing to us but they're really not essential or even good for a lot of the dogs for their you know because a lot of purebred dogs have a lot of genetic diseases and you know blindness and hip dysplasia and all these things that you know the wolf wouldn't have their ancestors but because they look cuter that's why we bred them. So it's it's interesting, and also the psychology behind that, and why we breed these animals. Some of them are were bred initially for you know working purposes, like the German Shepherd. But if you even compare the earlier German Shepherds to modern day German Shepherds, they've changed dramatically with their posture and their like the slope of their hips. Their back legs are so close. If you look at you know modern show dogs today, their hips are so close to the ground compared to you know if you look at old like Rin. Tin tin films. Is that to launch hmm. themselves better? At no, a... it's just because it looks better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so they pre-select that, and... yeah, and they breed for it. So it's very wow. interesting. Yeah, John, when did people start domesticating chickens? Do you know? At least a couple years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. I think it was the 70s. Yeah, when disco came uh, it around. It could have been. It could have been. Yeah, the funky do the funky chicken. The I think that chicken. maybe that was it. Uh Well, you uh, last time I saw you at the Ann Arbor Farmers Market, you had you had answered the age old question of what came first, uh, the chicken or the egg. That's right. It's the egg. Hello. Yeah. And I've always told people that because genetically you have this pre-chicken, right? The thing that's not quite the chicken. And then it lays this egg. That's where the mutation takes place, when the egg is being formed. So you have the egg, the first chicken egg, and then the first chicken pops out. That was always my theory. And this la- within this last year, the Guardian uh, UK, the London newspaper, did a study, and they talked to geneticists, they talked to farmers, they talked to, they, they really went into the science of it. And I'm sure it was just, you know, a fluke, to, uh, you know, let's just see what this is. And they came up with the exact same thing. Two minutes, folks. <laughs> it's that we came up, they came up with the exact same thing as I did and for the exact same reason. So I was pretty proud of myself. But <laughs> all chickens come from one chicken. And it's, well, do all the different breeds come from a red jungle fowl of India. And every breed that we know today, and there's hundreds and hundreds of them, all come from this one, and I actually have some. I didn't bring any with me, or I would hold it up to the microphone and show people, but they're really cool. They're a very small bird. They lay these little tiny pointy eggs, and they make the best hard-boiled eggs mm. I have ever had. <laughs> it's like fan. It's like eating candy. <laughs> there's, there's a sweetness to them. 
Uh-huh. And um, it's pretty cool. I also have some Saipan jungle fowl, which supposedly get two to three feet tall. They're already over a foot tall, and get, I just you, got them in June. Do you get any uh, trouble? I don't know if you live in the township or the city about the, the variety of animals and whether they are considered invasive species, or do you need certain licenses to have no. that many breeds or that many that no much no I, I live out in webster township and there's nothing like that there's rumors of like f- the state having rules against certain pigs and stuff like that yes. but my son actually raises a couple of those pigs for the 4-h project see blue ribbon livestock i'm wearing my shirt um, and he raises he raised over the last couple of years two rare Tamworth pigs. They were bred for bacon. It's pretty cool. So then he sells them at the 4-H fair. In this year, um, a small little place here in Ann Arbor called Zingerman's Delicatessen Heard bought them both. <laughs> and we're finishing them up for the, uh, about another week. And then they will uh, they'll be sent off for ice cream. And then they'll be made into pork pot pies mm. that they'll start serving on January 1st. And then, and it partially it came out of the... We're off of chickens, we're on to pigs now. Since well, now we're back to turkeys oh. because they get 60 or 70 turkeys from me every year. And they make the John H. turkey pot pie. And oh. I'm John H. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're the best. And the first time Roger ever told me, Roger was the head chef there... Um, that they were going to make pot pies out of them. My thought was just, oh, my God, how can you take these beautiful birds and kill them? When I, I just wreck them, not kill them, they're killed beforehand. Um, when I grew up, pot pies were the worst meal of the month. They were, my mother overcooked everything, and they weren't banquet, they weren't swanson, they were tip-top or something like that. I think they were tip-top. Just, <laughs> and they were just horrible. There was not enough milk in that house to choke them down. But now, for the one I of hope the first... your mom's not listening. <laughs> no, no, no. For one of the first times in my life, like I usually, my voice, my, the voice comes out, and then I think, but it's like my brain clicked one more time, and all of a sudden it hit me. I bet you pot pies don't have to be what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. And indeed, they're not. They're these gravy-laid, just wonderful, succulent, juicy <laughs> little wonders. And you get royalties every time they sell one? <laughs> no, but they buy them from me. The first <laughs> the first time they ever bought them, I don't know, they bought like 12 or 25 or oh, something. Oh, you make this them in years the, the No, 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 no. I sell them the birds. The processed turkeys. So then, in the first time they ever did this, they uh, says, well, we're going to put your name up on lights. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, I was just happy for the sale. And indeed, within a week, people were calling me, wow, you're selling your birds to Sigurdman's? Your name's all over the place. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. I love it. Don't we got to take a break or something? Yeah, we've got to listen to a tune that you suggested, uh, which is Louis Jordan with Nobody Here But Us Chickens and everybody else that is hot in here and all our listeners. Let's all be chickens, y'all. Barnyard with the graves of care. Out in the hen house up stood. When he hollered, Who's that? This is what he heard. There ain't nobody here but us chickens. There ain't nobody here at all. 
so quiet and self Stop that fuss There ain't nobody here but us We chickens try to sleep And you bust in And hobble, 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 hobble With your chin There ain't nobody here but us chickens There ain't nobody here at all You're stomping around And shaking the ground Kicking up an awful fuss We chickens try to sleep And you bust in And hobble, 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 hobble It's a sin Tomorrow is a busy day We got things to do We got eggs to lay We got ground to dig And worms to scratch Takes a lot of setting Getting chicks to hatch There ain't nobody here with us chickens There ain't nobody here at all So quiet yourself Stop that fuss There ain't nobody here but us Kindly point that gun the other way And hobble, hobble, hobble off and hit the head Setting, getting chicks to hatch There ain't nobody here but us chickens There ain't nobody here at all So quiet yourself Stop that fuss There ain't nobody here but us Kindly point that gun the other way And hobble, hobble, hobble off and hit the hay Hey, daddy, what do you say? It's easy picking There ain't nobody here but us chickens Hey, ain't nobody here but us chickens. That's right. John, how long have you been taking your birds? How long have you been raising happy hens? Um, let's see. This is 2013, 19 years. I got my first chickens in April of 1994. I moved into my place where I am now in... 93. I just graduated Cranbrook and I needed to move. And I wanted, I was into art. So I wanted to be not far from Detroit and all the galleries there. There was a, one really good gallery here, the Alexa Lee Gallery, that was just amazing. And so I wanted to be near that art scene. I also wanted to raise food because I wanted to know what I was eating. And I was, uh-huh. I, I, I love eating dead animals, I guess, meat. And so, but I I grew up in Detroit. I mean, I'm an ignorant city kid. Well, not ignorant, but I was a city kid. What do I know? So what I did is I talked to everyone I knew. I worked out at the Milford Proving Grounds. I talked to, there were a lot of farmers that worked out there. I visited farms. I talked to them. And this was basically, at least for me, way pre-internet. And so I read. I got books and I read and I talked and I saw and I built my first chicken coop. And I got my first chickens. I wanted heritage hens. I got white Jersey Giants and Buff Orpingtons, beautiful birds. And because if you, let's say you raise a steer, and because of... As we all have. Well, yeah. (laughs) And for, because of ignorance or any other reason, you lose it because you don't know what you're doing. And I knew I didn't. It's very expensive. 
eh, you lose a chicken, not so much. <laughs> and so that's why I decided on poultry. And I've always wanted to do sheep or goats or something else. But I do poultry really, really well. People tell me that it's not the best chicken or the best duck or the best turkey. They tell me it's the best meat they've ever had. I get that. I get that all the time. And I think about a year or so ago, I was walking down Liberty right by Maynard, I think. Just flapping your arms? Like no, you I was just do. walking. I think I was going to the townie party or something <laughs> like that or top of the park. I can't remember. And someone was at the stop sign there on Liberty. They rolled their window down and they gave me a literal shout out. Say, hey, John, that seven pound bird we bought from you, it was amazing. Now, that was a literal shout out out on the streets. <laughs> And it's wow. it's why I do it. I'm I'm not making money at it. It's just the price of feed is is just out of control. I was at um, a Thurston Moore concert in Chicago recently, and I happened to be. This was in the spring. I was happy. I was sitting next to on a couch. It was an empty bottle in Chicago. It's a beautiful. I love the space. And I ended up talking to this guy and his wife, and I was with my girlfriend, and. I asked him what he did. I said, well, I'm a lawyer. I says, so what do you law? And he says, well, I work for the New York Stock Exchange. I says, doing what? And he said, commodities. I said, oh, hey, let's talk. And so I presented my theory why the price of feed drought, the fact that China and India are doing so much better economically. They actually have more money. They need, they're eating better. It drives up the price of corn, soy, other commodities. Um, for them to feed their own domestics. Right. Right, and everything is worldwide now. Um, ethanol, because ethanol is corn, but if the price of corn goes up, people stop raising, they start raising more corn, which means that wheat and beans and everything else becomes scarcer, and so their price goes up too, so it all goes up together. But the number one thing was speculators. When the housing bubble burst, all these banks and everyone else put their money into commodities. Because there weren't tulips to buy. To uh... Exactly. And so it's raised it, and it's been really hard, especially for someone like me. I mean, I'm really small time. I've got a couple thousand birds, and I'm just, economically, I'm not doing it. But people tell me when I talk to them about getting, I'm trying to, been trying to get a teaching job for a number of years, and they say, well, we hope you get a job, but please don't stop doing this. Mm. And that's why I do it. It's very important to me to have good, healthy food that tastes really good. What is the, the didn't Ann Arbor come up with some law recently or debate a law about raising of chickens that it was now allowed? I think you allowed? can have a few of them. Three yeah. of them. Three. Okay. Three backyard chickens. Anybody on but any you street? No, no, no. you got to get permission from your neighbors, and I don't know how far it goes around. Because some rooster crowing can be just and, the most annoying well, thing Well, and only world. hens. Only no hens. No cocks. Oh. That's, huh. And by permission, it's like just a shot over the fence or like a document I th No, says, I think you have to have a form. I, I think you have to apply for chicken permits. So there's something official about it, and I believe Yipsy has the same thing, and there's a few others. Years ago, a friend of my sister's in Detroit did it, and totally illegal. This was, I don't know when, a long time ago. And they had them until one of the neighbors, like three or four doors down, didn't like it for whatever reason. They said he was Rooster. psychotic, but who knows. <laughs> and so they called, and one day animal control showed up at the door, and they had to get rid of him then mm -hmm. and there. So, Andy, do you know of other researchers? Is domesticated chickens a 
front burner issue in the human animal studies world or um no i think actually uh you know more involving chickens it is you know with the mass productions of chickens in america and you know the amount of slaughterhouses and all that kind of thing and how people you know deal with the ethical issues revolving around Mm. chickens you know because while there are a lot of you know local farmers like you here but the majority of chickens <laughs> comes from these mass slaughterhouses and these mass farms and so you know human animal studies is it's it doesn't take a specific stance on anything but it really explores these issues and how they affect you know the psychology behind it in people and also how it is affecting the psychology of these animals you know can chickens feel pain can chickens think how do they of you know course. exactly like how do <laughs> How does it affect the chicken? <laughs> I, and this is a well, question dance, I had, actually. <laughs> um, John, do you ever feel like you're tricking your chickens? Like, here's this beautiful life. Do, 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 do. Everything's great. And then you're like, off to the slaughterhouse, buddies. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe not. You know, sometimes I go in and when egg production is down, I give them little pep talks and I tell them, you know, yeah. if you don't start laying more eggs, I'm going to stop selling eggs. And I'm going to be like Mrs. Tweedy from Chicken Run. I'm going to start selling chicken. <laughs> They just kind of cackle at me, and they know I'm just joking. So, <laughs> and then Nicholas pets him on the head, yeah. makes him feel okay. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting you're talking about the the slaughterhouses and mass production. I understand why people raise these birds inside. You can control things. I deal with predators all the time. I deal with like it's been raining for a couple of days, and just everything has is just turned to mud and they're out their food is outside they got to go outside they get wet it's not a good it's not a good scene man and and I take my birds up to be processed up in Fowlerville and the people who do it were in 4H with my niece I really like what they do I really like the facilities and even had last um, Thanksgiving someone wanted a halal turkey so he came up at 7 o'clock, and he was there, and he did everything he needed to do, and they kept the bird separate for him and kept it tagged so that when he came to pick up his turkeys from me, and I had, a, I don't know, 250 last year, something like that, um, he got his halal bird. Now, sometime in November, I'm going to be working with some people for um, to learn how to do kosher chicken. Some guy's coming from somewhere back east and doing a class for these these young Jewish people, and they, they'll get some of my birds for it, and then I'll be a part of the process, so I understand, because I think that, I, I don't mean this is in a business sense, but I think that there's a market for um, good, healthy, homegrown kosher chicken. I don't know how to go about doing it. And maybe I just need to, you know, go online and get one of those... Um, you know how you can be kosherchicken.com? Well, no, 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 no. You know how you can become a minister online. You, you could do marriages, stuff like that. But does Maybe kosher you become re- a rabbi online does and do ref- rab- go kosher chickens. Refer to how the chicken is bred and fed processed. or how it's processed. Mm. How it's processed. There are certain things. It's got. I, I don't know all of it. I think it's got to be brined afterwards in a saltwater solution. It has to have a very sharp knife. There's, there's not that much difference between halal and... And kosher. Mm-hmm. I mean, it comes mm-hmm. out of the same area, so the rules are somewhat similar. So, it all sounds when delicious. Get, when they can get kosher buffalo wings, that will be a breakthrough in uh, 
Yeah, yeah, Religious yeah. studies slash human animal studies. <laughs> yeah. Are we oh, running out of time? We really are. And indeed, we should probably say our thank yous and goodbyes. The hour goes too quickly uh, many times. I know. I want to keep talking. I know we can. Well, we should we should have y'all both back, actually. What year are you in, Andy? I'm a junior. Okay. Yeah. So I'm in grade 24. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to do that uh, math on my own side. No, it's true. I'm finishing up my fourth degree. One terminal degree, a couple masters, and a BFA from Michigan State. Look at you. And raising oh, oh, so hey, many Oh, hey, did barriers. you see the new Edible Wow issue? No. Oh, my God. You're killing me. I'm in it. Nicholas is in it. Nicholas is turning 16 on Sunday. And he's in it. They have a beautiful shot of him wearing this shirt, sitting on top of our Farmall M. And it's a really nice article. I really like it. They didn't say anything bad. I Thank like goodness. things like that. Do you I should have brought one. Do you have a website that you'd like I to do. Buy? HarnoyFarms.com. I think it's up and running. How do you spell that name again? Harnoy. H A R N. O-I-S, as in Sam. Farms, because i that's what I do. I, what does Harnoy do? He farms. he farms. So it's a verb and a noun. I like that. Yes. <laughs> dot com. Very economical. That's right, dot com. And you are at the Ann Arbor Farmer's Market? On Wednesdays and Saturdays. Mm-hmm. I also sell, I'm making deliveries like to the People's Food Co-op, Harvest Kitchen. I drop some chickens off to her. She makes ready-to-eat meals. Um, so I deliver to Plum Market, Arbor Farms, Hillers, all of that. And they have my, but mostly my chickens and my turkeys. I also have geese, hopefully ducks for the holidays. Yum, yum, yum. So. Well, excellent. Well, we'll check in with y'all closer to uh, the the Thanksgiving season. Hopefully. Yeah, 